it was a great success essentially and people wanted me to do it again and I said no thank you. That was Zoe Ajonu, a writer, chef and food justice activist from Southeast London. Zoe has become a leading voice in championing the last frontier in gastronomy, new African cuisine and is the founder of the pioneering contemporary West African food business Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. She is also the founder of Black Book, a platform for promoting diversity in the global food industry and hospitality. She is a writer, she works in events, I mean she does so many things and she is actually currently writing her memoir. With that said, let's dive into our conversation with Zoe. Zoe, welcome to the I Like Networking podcast. Yes, hello, babe. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here on the I Like Networking podcast because I love networking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love eating, so I feel like I would prefer to do this like in your house, eating your food, because I was looking at your website and it made me so hungry. So, you know, I'll leave this conversation and go straight oh, yeah. to the kitchen to do It's something. a happy marriage. <laughs> We have made a happy marriage, food and networking together and conversation. Three of my favorite things. So Zoe, you are from the UK, mm -hmm. but you grew up in Southeast London. Am I right? Yeah. You said, but Southeast London is still in the yeah, UK. Yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You grew up Done. in Southeast London. Uh, yeah. You have a Ghanaian father and an Irish mother. And you've had mm -hmm. quite a diverse career. I mean, I guess you still do because you're like a writer, a chef, uh, an activist. Like you do so many things. But well, I wouldn't say activist, actually. I'm, I'm a bit, yeah, I think it's a difficult. It's a cumbersome kind of word. I'm not really, I don't feel like an activist, more of an advocate for activists, I would probably suggest. I should change my bio. <laughs> that's, well, that's a nice word, advocate. I like that. I would still argue that you're kind of an activist, but we'll, we can talk about that later on. We can agree <laughs> to disagree. Uh, so before we dive into everything that you've done, could you just tell us what has been the worst job experience you've ever had or your biggest career failure? Oh my goodness. Woo, woo. Wow, that's such a cool question. Oh, I've had so many terrible jobs. Um, okay, I think the first one that springs immediately to mind is I used to live in Brighton and I worked, uh, I had a sequence of terrible part-time temping jobs um, when I first got to Brighton. And one of them was working as a receptionist on Brighton Pier in the office. And it was like being in... Um, and the, all of the owners of this establishment of Brighton Pier were said to be, <laughs> known to be, sort of mafia-like people from Newcastle. So they were like Newcastle mafia. <laughs> and they were all like in their 70s and like misogynists and just home, you know, the worst kind, you know, like a Trump supporter type, basically. Um, that was one of the worst jobs. I think I lasted about three days, yeah. Oh my god! Um, yeah, yikes! It was horrible. Oh, I'm sorry about that. And very like you know, very me too with it as well. It was disgusting. Oh yeah, it makes me shudder thinking about it. Oh, that's nasty. I'm sorry you had to mm. go through that, but I'm glad you got out fast. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm also I was used to be when I was <laughs> when I was looking for work. If it didn't please me very quickly, I left very quickly. I wasn't very. I didn't stick around very long. <laughs> I either got bored or, um, yeah, mostly bored quickly, actually, is what used to happen. I feel you. That was like my life as well. But this is not about me, so we're not going to that. But yeah, I feel I, I, I identify with that trait. Let's leave, yeah. let's leave it at that. Yeah, kind of, you know, when you like spend a lot of years skipping around the idea of something, like, I don't know, it's, it feels clearer to me now what was going on, but you know, like dabbling in other people's creative spaces and then like dipping your toes in. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Not given the example I've just given of Brighton Pier, but, um, you know, like I used to work as a, you know, a poster girl, fly girl, and I used to work in a, uh, a print marketing place for live events and music events. And then I used to get to go to those events for free. And then I started writing 
reviews of the things I went to and then I started writing you know then I was doing journalism and then then I started hanging out with musicians and then I became band manager and you know what I mean and putting on events and like running um I used to take like the the people who are into the indie gay scene in Brighton I used to run buses up to London to go out to King's Cross to like all of the big indie gay nights so I was always you know moving around other people's creativity without really doing it for myself which is I guess what happened when I left Brighton and came back to London yeah I, but there's still a bit of a gap but yeah I think that's one sorry of the, was a lot of <laughs> no no but that's like that's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you because of course uh I think most people will know you from your food you have mm. Zoe's Ghana Kitchen you've done tons of supper clubs and pop-up residencies so we could say you're sort of an events pro but uh, yeah. You're launching a new book now, and you well, basically. Oh, it's not a new. It's not a new book. Sorry, that sounds. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's 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 the same cookbook, but it has a new jacket, so it's uh, enlivened, and obviously it has it. a new introduction. Yes, and um, quotes from by Nigella, very fancy, and some endorsements from some wonderful humans. Yes, yes. including Nigella Lawson and uh, Bryant Terry and. Uh, Diana Henry and lo lots of people. Yolanda Knopfler, Ruby Tando. Um, oh people have been God, very nice. That's to really you. amazing. I'm sure you deserve all of that praise. Diana Henry is one of. I have a friend who's an amazing cook, and Diana Henry is one of her biggest. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, she's like a grand dame yeah. of British cookery, isn't she? Yeah. But I, I didn't know. I didn't even know she knew who I was. You know, and she reached out to me. She's so lovely. No way! Oh my God! I love when <laughs> that happens. Not that it happens that much to me, but I feel like that's a really nice, like, you know, full circle moment of the universe. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know about the full circle bit on that one. <laughs> but, I mean, certainly what there's been a lot of collaboration and, well, networking. Yeah. But not, like, networking in, like, a... What's the word? Let me tell you about a part of my spiritual and like personal professional growth over the last sort of 18 months yes. prior to the last 18 months. I think I, not, I think I know I used to have a really hard time asking for help um, and, and receiving help well. Um, and, you know, just trusting people. I had, you know, some issues. <laughs> Let's just put it like that. And, um, you know, what I've been learning to do is, be connected to people and be vulnerable in that connection, um, which I think has come across as like in only from you know for the better for me because it's just increased authenticity. I can be more of myself um, if I'm a bit more open, and so it's meant that I'm being I've got better at asking generally, not just asking for help. So just connecting with people that I like, the, you know, the cut of their jib. You know, so if I'm following somebody on Instagram and they don't know me from God knows who, I'll be like, hey, love your profile. Want to get a coffee over Zoom, you know? Um, if there's synergy in what they, they, they think or believe or what they're doing or I just am a fan. Um, I've just got really good over the last year of just be, like just be at reaching out more to people. And, um, and that's been, you know, and what's been great about that is, on the flip side, other people have been great at reaching out to me, you know, um, and that's how that Diana Henry connection came about. That's incredible. That's so what, was. what, what was the, like the, did you not, did you not feel comfortable before doing that? Like what were the big changes that you've made in sort of your like networking strategy, I guess? Um, I didn't have a networking strategy ever. And I mean, I never have. I've never entertained the concept of networking because <laughs> I've always thought of it as um, it's about, I'll tell you what it was. It was, I was in a, a scarcity mentality for a very long time. And when you're in that kind of mindset, it, it just makes you fearful of things. And also I had a lot of sort of negative um EQ with money I don't know if that makes sense but like my relationship with money was quite negative like you know when you're like things that get fed to you information wise as a child and what you experience as a kid it kind of just plays into like your whole mindset and your subconscious and I think that for me you know networking was something that was associated with highfalutin 
you know, high powered CEOs and like really stinking rich people. And I had that judgment of that kind of space ingrained in me, you know. And so it was my mindset has changed considerably because I've been, you know, just doing doing some work and <laughs> doing some work on myself and um, you know, just being more on top of my wellness and my kind of having a spiritual practice and things like that. And just um just being more in in the moment and in the day and being more present and mindful. And it's just the rewards have been that I've been more connected to people and people have been more connected to me and that's made me um happy <laughs> and good. And I've just realized that actually that is what I do best is I've always connected people together, you know, other people. I've always been that person who's been able to introduce somebody to somebody else and uh, know that that's a match for whatever it is, whether it's a business relationship or a friendship or, you know, whatever the relationship. I've always been good at matching people and connecting people. And then I realized actually what I'm good at is just connecting with people and I'm embracing that. So that's why I'm doing a million hundred podcasts and all of the live IGs I did all, you know, throughout last year and, um, yeah, just talking to people and I don't know, like trying to just get to know like what's going on for people and how can we fix it if it needs fixing and how can we celebrate it if it needs celebrating and, you know, just to be in conversation, to be in communion, I guess. Yeah, I love that. That's very well put. I think it's interesting that you say you had this scarcity mindset and that it started changing like a year ago while like basically then the pandemic hit all of us, but especially I guess the hospitality events and like the catering business and scarcity or scarcity is most of the news that we get. Like how did you... How did you adapt to the pandemic in terms of you, yourself, but also your businesses? Yeah. Um, well, how did I do that? Well, you know, in order for Ghana Kitchen, Ghana Kitchen's main income or main business was catering and street food. And that involved all of the festivals, you know, weddings, large events, basically, where lots of people congregate. So um, that kind of put the business... You know, I was I was on the verge of you know having to go insolvent, basically having to be bankrupt because I wasn't eligible for any government assistance just because of you know I'm a micro business and I'm a you know self-employed director of a small you know it's all of the gaps basically I'm in them. Um, so the immediate solution was to do the first was to ask for help and uh, that was um, you know I made a video. <clears throat> basically I, I, I launched a crowdfunder to open a community kitchen for three months because I thought there was a lot of different things going on but my dad has uh, schizophrenia and he's a high risk um, individual and you know what it became apparent very quickly when the lockdown thing happened that he wasn't his, his care was at risk and it led me to think that there's probably a lot of people in my community whose care is at risk as well um, and you know what the only way that I could be of service would be to feed them. <clears throat> so given that my business was on its ass, I thought that a crowdfunder might solve both those problems at once, <clears throat> which it did. And so I made a video and, you know, it went out on the old internet and people were really kind and supported the campaign. And so I was able to, to run a kitchen for three months, you know, feeding um, various vulnerable groups, whether they be old or um, at-risk migrants and, you know, members of the LGBTQ community and then also, um, you know, NHS staff in various hospitals around me, in the boroughs around me. So <clears throat> that kept the business going. Well, not the business going. It kept the business alive, let's say, for three months. And then I converted it into um, uh, a spice shop, which is where we're at at the moment. Uh, Ghana Kitchen's currently operating as an e-commerce platform selling single origin um, spices from West Africa um, through transparent supply chain. And, you know, that is part of this bigger idea that I've taken on in the last year of decolonizing the food industry. But this isn't, I just went on a rampage, <laughs> just went on a different tangent. That's not the question you asked. You asked, how did I do that? Um, and the reason I was able to do, to, to, I guess the reason I had the mindset to be able to, 
turn that shitstorm around was because I'd already begun this work of, you know, looking. I, I basically ended up in hospital at the end of September last year, um, like really seriously ill in critical, like in the critical condition, and it's one of those moments of pain where you have to reevaluate your life and your goals and what you're doing and all that stuff. So I had already began this process of looking inward and I took a sabbatical and went to New York to see my wife and we just played uh, rather than being in the business or, you know, anything like that. We played creatively and we created uh, menus for Sankofa, a new private dining concept. And we tested that concept and it was really fun. Anyway, the point is I just took a different, I decided to take a break and then come back to it with a different kind of energy and mindset. And that was just through doing a lot of, you know, listening to lots of podcasts, finding, you know, therapy, um, you know, researching lots of different types of practice and working out what kind of practice is good for me in the morning in which I have a really solid uh, routine of meditation exercise journaling gratitudes affirmations you know and all of that stuff as well as also getting sober during that period all kind of just made me very strong and gave me a lot of uh, energy for for this new these new ideas that I had and I had the space to make those ideas happen because I wasn't running a catering business, you know? Well, that's a very intense journey for you, considering everything that the world is going through at the same time. I'm glad you're okay now. And it's interesting. I know that you mentioned about your routine in another interview recently about your meditation. I was going to ask you about that. But before, mm. because I feel like we started everything like backwards, but okay. Just to give, Sorry. no, 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 it's fine. I told you this goes on tangents. It's absolutely, that's the point. It's like a organic conversation so that more people can have insight into you, basically, in whatever form that may be. But mm -hmm. I wanted you, if you could just give us a brief intro for anyone who does not know that much about you. I know, obviously, you had a diverse career before, I guess, rediscovering or discovering Ghana through food somehow and bringing it to the UK. So how would you, do you remember when you first had the idea for what would be Zoe's Ghana Kitchen? And could you just give us a brief sort of intro to how you got it all started? Oh God, it's really hard for me to do this in a short way. Uh, okay. Go for I'll it. Be, I'll, I'll do it as condensed as I can. So 2010, I came back from America broke. It was the weekend of Hackney Wicked Arts Festival. My apartment was being used as an open studio because it was an open studios festival. Thousands of people came into Hackney Wick um, in a pre-gentrified Hackney Wick, meaning there was nowhere for them to eat or drink really. So I thought, but it was an opportunistic moment for me to make money. So I thought um, I would sell a big pot of peanut butter stew, which I did. I borrowed um, the equipment to do so, and I made a pot. A friend made a sign saying Zoe's famous peanut butter stew, um, famous obviously only to them and me, <laughs> but, you know, marketing. And then um, it was a great success, essentially, and people wanted me to do it again, and I said, no, thank you. It's been very nice, but no. But that occasion brought up some questions around why people had never heard people didn't even know where Ghana was on a map for Christ's sake um, and people had never heard of the food never heard of the dishes and I thought that was interesting but I just parked it there and then a year later I that same weekend we just because we had a lot of fun we thought oh let's do it again but we did it in a much bigger way and I turned my apartment into an actual restaurant um, for all intents and purposes and people were trying to book you know, um, again, like next week, next month. And they're like, no, sorry, this is my living room. That's my office. We've just made all of this for this weekend. Um, but I collected email addresses and, you know, I decided to do it again, essentially. And I kept deciding to do it again because it was fun. And it was funding me through my MA at Goldsmiths, which meant I didn't have to work for anybody else apart from myself, which I absolutely loved <laughs> and at my own convenience and doing something that was wonderful and lovely. So, you know, it came organically in many ways. Um, and I was very hesitant to do anything to do with food. You know, I hadn't done, had any culinary training. It was never in my 
vision board that that was something I was going to do, even though I had always loved cooking and loved feeding people. It just wasn't on my radar as something to pursue as a business. And eventually the supper clubs kept going and halfway, you know, I finished my MA at Goldsmiths and, you know, the supper clubs were still happening. I decided I wanted to move to Berlin to focus on being a writer, but I used Ghana Kitchen to, you know, as a job to feed myself while I was in Berlin. Anyway, I got a big following in Berlin and then suddenly, you know, I was going back and forth between Berlin and London and I just thought, this is ridiculous. This is obviously, you know, the universe is telling me that this is a business, stop fighting it. And it was at that point, so I left Berlin and came back to London and had to think, what is it about this that people love so much? Um, And that's when it was like that business plan on the back of a fag packet thing of, okay, what's the mission? bring African food to the masses because they don't know about it. Um, and how am I going to do it in as many ways as possible, like catering, supper club, street food, you know, and I did all the things and that's how it came to be. Friends, this is a quick break to tell you about our amazing sponsors day and women-led company revolutionizing your periods with sustainable tampons you can be proud of. They're clinically validated, cramp-sitting CBD tampons delivered straight to your door whenever it fits your cycle. To get five pounds off your first box of tampons or probiotics, just head over to yourday.com and use the code NETWORKING5. That's very concise. Thank you, Zoe. But also, <laughs> it's very it's it's interesting how it all started as like I don't know, sort of a, a an a, like a support system for your MA. And I guess you did an MA in in writing, right? At Goldsmiths. Uh, yeah. Creative and life writing, yeah, which I it's guess, a wonderful course. Which I guess came in handy because you wrote this book and you are writing your memoir still? Yes, I had to park it a bit because I got, um, you know, busy <laughs> launching new businesses. But, um, yeah, I'm going back to that this year. I would, would like to finish that finally. Um, there is some interest in it, actually. Yes. So, yeah, you know, it would be, yeah, I want to get back to writing, but, you know, I want to, I want to be all aspects of who I am now actually like I'm not just a chef and I don't want to be just a chef anymore I just want to be doing things that um yeah bring me and other people joy so you know some of that is cooking but some of that's lots of other things as well you know yeah so beyond the the whole time management thing which I'm sure was a struggle (laughs) how what were like the main challenges in getting like Zoe's Ghana Kitchen up and running in your perspective, like now in hindsight? Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't start a business the way I started that. Again. <laughs> it was, I made it really hard for myself, I have to say. Um, you know, the main struggles were I that they only came as I tried to expand, actually. When I was just doing supper clubs and, and like, it was fine. I think when the, when the catering jobs got bigger and bigger, Basically, I'm that kind of entrepreneur type who says yes and then works out how to do it. But I would say yes to a lot at the same time and then be very stretched. Um, And so what would happen is I wouldn't have time to to fully dedicate to training a team. So the the team, the kitchen team, who often also weren't qualified chefs, you know, they were like home cooks or people that just like food, um, I never was able to, it was very difficult then for me to ever be removed from any event or any, um, you know, thing because I hadn't made the time to to put in place like a proper sort of training structure, um, I guess an operations manual, which was something that I never did ever really fully, fully do, to be honest. The paperwork side of business has never been my strong point, but um, I'm more of like creative lead. But, um, yeah, I think it was having team, not just for, um, like, time support, but also just to, uh, you know, um, grow with and share the vision with and stuff like that. I wasn't very good then, I think, at communicating a bigger vision. I think I kept it um, more inside of me then um, because, I don't know, I think I felt a bit – I was in that hustle mode constantly – um, and, you know, when you're constantly in hustle, you're not ever pausing to reflect on where you are necessarily or how far you've come or what direction you're going in and if it's in the right direction even. Um, 
so yeah I think it's, it's interesting that you mentioned time because time is the biggest uh, like either the, the misuse of or the overwork or the under allotment of I think it was yeah it was actually ultimately the the management of time that was the biggest struggle and did you find it easy to then find a team to support you and collaborators I know that you've been focused on um, making sure that at least you know 50% of your workforce comes from marginalized communities vulnerable people Uh, you identify yourself as coming from a working class immigrant background. So how was that process for you in terms of hiring people, finding teams and collaborators? And I guess a really important question, because you are an entrepreneur, is how was it for you to delegate? <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of questions. Sorry. Um, okay. What was the... You can start from the how, how, yeah. How was it trying to recruit people? Yes. Um, honestly, it was quite difficult. I mean, in one way, it was in one way it wasn't because lots of people wanted to be part of something that they thought was cool and fun, um, which it was. But also, I needed like a specific skill set, you know. And what what I wanted, it, I found it really really hard to recruit. For example. Um, young black or people of color be into the kitchen because I don't think that they thought of that cuisine as particularly like if they were interested in cooking they wanted to be in restaurants and they wanted to be in fine dining and they wanted to be doing that, that kind of thing so it was quite hard to find people who were interested in cooking and knew about the food um, that was a challenge And that was to do around, you know, perception of what was possible for that cuisine. Again, probably my bad because I didn't do a good translation of what it could be. You know, maybe I didn't give them good enough inspiration. But, um, yeah. And what was the second part of that, sorry? Just asking about the how it was for you to delegate or how it... Oh, to delegate. Yeah. Yeah, I'm te I, I still am not great at it, actually. I've got definitely better... Um, actually, very recently, I've got really good at it because it's become an emergency now. <laughs> um, but historically, I've been quite bad. Actually, and, and I think what I've been bad at is sometimes giving a person, um, you know, like delegating something and probably, again, due to my poor communication skills, not either giving them all they needed to get that done the way I wanted it or not communicating exactly how I wanted it to be do you know what I mean and then being frustrated um at the outcome I remember feeling frustrated a lot um but you know I've improved my communication skills now um and my delegation skills so you know I did a lot of rough learning basically uh you know I dragged myself through the ringer on all levels if it was HR accounting fucking You know, I was when you're doing street food, you're a plumber, you're an electrician, you know, you're front of house, you're back of house, you're the driver, you're like, you're everything. And it's the same when you're in a small business, right? You're the FD, the CTO, the COO, you're all of the hats. Um, and what, what what's important is to learn how to like, how and when to give over a hat and to who. And I think that that part was the bit I got a bit lost in. Um, but, you know, it's... I didn't regret any of it. Like everything, I learned a hell of a lot along the journey, you know, um, um, and it's been good. Yeah, I mean, the the wisdom of the hindsight is always easier, right? Like when you look and you're like, oh, I should have done it this way. But when you're in it, it can be quite difficult. And also, you you know, I guess you started Zoe's so Gone Kitchen a long time ago, and the mm. the uk food scene changed a lot and you mentioned that a lot of people weren't that uh familiar for instance with ghana as a country but you know <laughs> and as a cuisine so how do you think the like the sort of image of the african cuisine has changed in the uk since you started i think considerably i, I think that you know there's a lot more as well The, there's two things that have happened in parallel here, and that is the increased visibility of black cooking or food talent in general across print media 
um, and he, and broadcast. And then also, um, you know, th there was the Groundnut Cookbook, there was my cookbook, there was Lope Rai's cookbook, um, Yemisi's Long Throat Memoirs, um, and there continues to be now. I mean, there was a bit of a stall, I think, in any more African books coming out. They probably thought, oh, we've done Africa for a while. <laughs> but, you know, there continues to be now um, more cookbooks from the, coming out from the continent um, and more talent being profiled and represented largely. Mostly that change has been in the last year, frankly, following you know, Black Lives Matter. But gradually and on a drip feed that has happened over the last 10 years and also the number of people just cooking um from their home countries on the continent of africa has increased you know chukus have gone who had a really good street food concept and now gone on to open a great restaurant um you know shizuru Okoko, uh stork in mayfair all of the supper clubs all of the you know lem lems uh vingu there's just there's a hundred times, maybe five, I don't know, more, 200 times more um, sort of street food, supper clubs, restaurants and all that than when I started 10 years ago, which is an incredible amount of increase in supply, which must mean, as I predicted, that there's a huge demand once people know what it is. Um, so that can only continue and grow, I hope. And, um, you know, and it's definitely the case in the States. I've seen that there's more engagement with African cuisine there as people in the, you know, um, African-Americans engage with that part of their ancestry and food as always is the great, you know, gateway to culture. So I think that it's only, we're still only at the tip of this, this revolution really, and it will continue to grow and um, I'm excited to be part of it. Yeah, you say on that part of your mission really is or central to your mission is to decolonize the food industry and their mm -hmm. diets. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like how? Yeah. yeah. Well, decolonizing in general um, is a theme really for my life. But obviously my specific lens at the moment is food, but soon it will also be wellness. But, um, you know, what that means for me is I think... In a world where we understand that white supremacy is uh, the greatest power and the biggest threat to humanity, um, and we need to understand where that comes from, and it comes from colonialism, and there needs to be an examination of the impact of colonialism on how we think and how we... Um, you know, treat ourselves, treat our bodies, treat our minds, how we measure ourselves against our fellow man and whether we uh, look after our fellow man or we don't. You know, there's like, there just has to be this reevaluation of what is higher culture, what is higher thinking, what, you know, who tells who what is good or bad and why and for whose benefit and where that all stems from, you know, because um, every aspect of society, frankly, is built on colonialism, all of our institutions, and most of that has come at the cost of continents like Africa. So, and, you know, India and the so-called developing countries, as we used to be lumped together mm. after yeah. the raping and pillaging of our resources. Um <laughs> So, you know, decolonizing is just a thread that runs through my my being, I suppose. I know that sounds really fucking lofty and crap, but it's just kind of a core of what I understand to be behind um, anti-racism. And I think that, you know, if you think about all of the work that needs to be done just in the concept of anti-racism... For me, I think the work starts with decolonizing before you can even touch <laughs> anti-racism um, because it's the, the, the core of the problem is, is that deep, it's that systemic. It's like um, it's more, it's, it's, you know, it's the trauma of 500 years of being trod upon and what that does for your mindset and what that does for how you... <clears throat> You know, exist in the world and what what your goals are and your purpose and 
so many different parts of how you perform life and business and relationships, you know, it all feeds into that. So I think it's just a, a massive issue. Obviously, again, not, not it's such a big topic that I can't obviously think of tackling all of that. So I have to focus on where, where my where my time is best spent in having that kind of conversation and it's best spent in the food industry, obviously, because that's where I have some profile. Um, and so it's about trying to always lead these conversations um, um, and, you know, and make them a fabric of everything I'm doing. Not necessarily like shoving it down people's, you know, it's not about that so much. It's, um, it's just trying to sort of guide people to think a little bit broader um, because it is a lot, you know, it's a lot to take on as a concept. Um, yeah. But it, it's, it, but as a concept, it's huge. But in practice, the changes can be quite small. You know what I mean? It's like if you think about what, who you're buying from and what it is that you're buying from them and like who made that and do you think that they got paid fairly compared to the price that you're paying on the packet? And, you know, do you think, you know, it's just getting people to have to have those these mindfulness moments around ingredients and around seasonality, perhaps, and around sustainability and around just purchasing decisions. Um, that will, you know, it's about yeah, a tipping point, isn't it? And the, the more people we can educate in small, bite-sized ways, then the more collective consciousness raises. I think overall. Yes, and I think food is always like such a good food can create such a great space even to like hold conversations i mean you said you like to talk and connect people so that for me makes sense you know because it is about at least like in you know compartir you know like it's comes from like breaking bread and so like it's all about sharing a table sharing something made you know together to nourish exactly. so there's a lot that can happen in that space which i think it's really important yeah and so yeah i know we are running a bit out of time, but I want to ask you two more questions. I promise they won't be as long as as difficult as the last ones. <laughs> if that's not difficult, I just waffle on and on and on. I told you I like talking. It's fine. I love talking. I could talk to you a lot. You have a great voice. You should do something like radio based. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think so. Thanks. It's very soothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wanted to know what was the process for you of like writing a recipe book because I don't know if that's what you imagined yourself doing when you first went to Berlin like how did the whole thing go for you was it something that you were ready to do was it like a massive hurdle like was it a really enjoyable process because we have a lot of people that want to either write or be in the publishing industry in our community and I think that we often don't think about we, that those are always thought as like fiction, you know, and we don't talk a lot about everything else that exists. And I think cookbooks are just such a specific type of project to tackle, you know? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> was I ready? I mean, I'm, I, I had got to the point of mentally thinking that I could, you know, I felt in a place of professional growth where I could do a cookbook. I felt ready in that respect. Um, but obviously I had no idea what was really involved in writing. <laughs> I don't think I really understood the task at hand completely, which sounds stupid, but I don't know. But, um, you know, it's it was... The process was... Um, part of the process was going back to Ghana, which was incredible. Um, and, you know, a huge moment of, again, self-spirit and professional growth um so that was amazing um writing like all the creative things around the book was amazing like you know being able to do the introduction and all the head notes and write the stories that are in there and all of that um the recipes themselves were incredibly um it was challenging because i you know i was like a a home cook turned chef maybe if you will and, you know, I was used to cooking by instinct and sight and, you know, pinch of this, bit of that, da 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 So, you know, while there was there was a canon of recipes that existed, um, for obviously, because I had a catering business, they weren't all necessarily recipes that would go in the book, but also they were like catering quantity recipes, you know. So it was just like, oh, my God, how do I make this a meal for two, <laughs> you know? 
Um, so it had a lot of challenges and also time again, because I, I had my restaurant at the time in Brixton and I was, you know, working the all the shifts <laughs> every day. So, you know, it was like long 16 hour days driving an hour from Brixton to Hackney Wick and then, you know, having dinner or a snack or whatever I could put in my gob and then like writing until two or three in the morning and then, you know, and it was just like that for three months. So that part of it wasn't fun necessarily, but there were moments in that that were fun because sometimes when you're writing, you know, it's just like when you're in the flow of it, it's kind of joyful. You get this, this like this, I don't know, it's, and how to describe that. I'm sure everybody knows what their flow state's like. But um you know, so it was it was difficult. Um but also again I learned a lot doing it. Um and you know the shoot was quite fun. Um the shoot was lots of fun actually. Um but I don't know if I was completely present for it because there was always like other things happening. I think during that whole process I don't know that I was entirely present which is which is why it's especially nice that the book is kind of um well that not kind of but it is being re-released so I get to have that kind of that moment again if you know what I mean like and and I'm I'm here for it now whereas I wasn't really there for it because so much else was going on around me while it was happening so in terms of like business I mean like just work and stuff so yeah I hope that answers your question and makes sense but um I'm, I'm, you know, how I would approach a cookbook now and how I'm approaching the book I'm writing now is completely different. You know, it's very much more, way much more structured. Um, the treatment is more detailed and there's much more sort of um, intention behind it. And I think, you know, Zoe's Garner, Zoe's Garner Kitchen Cookbook was... Is, is is a representation of my energy and my headspace at the time, which was, yeah, la, 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 you know, like, I love this, I love everything about this, I want you to experience it, da, da, da. and I still have that energy, but it's a bit more balanced now um, with other aspects of my experience and of myself. So this book has a, a kind of an, a different tone, you know, and a different modality to it, but... Um, you know, Zoe's Garner Kitchen is all, you can kind of tell as well because it's really, I think Ruby Tando described it quite well in that article about it being kind of, it's like, it's very, you know, my energy is very um, excited. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's what she was trying to say because um, I'm just like so, I'm so excited because I'm fresh back from this experience in Accra and I'm telling you about my family and I'm telling you these anecdotes about me going to market so you know it's all like that energy and so all of that energy um I'm glad and happy and grateful to say I still retain but it's just a bit more harnessed and a bit more you know Sometimes, but in other times, it's like you go check out my Instagram and like, post a hundred things in one day because I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but you know, yeah, the book is like this it's a love letter to Ghana, and it's like it's it's about exactly where I was then, it's really of, of its time. Um, but the recipes are recipes I still cook today, you know, but I would probably write the book differently. Actually, no, I wouldn't. I love the way that book is laid out. I mean, I love the playlists. I love the, you know, it's it's such a personal, it's almost like a bit of my diary, you know, um, a bit of me kind of thing. So there's nothing I would change about it. And I love the cover and its texture. And it's it's completely evocative of what Ghana Kitchen um, was doing at the time. And it was, you know, bringing traditional recipes to people's attention, but adding this kind of more contemporary um, element of trying to show people what else could be possible with this cuisine. It's like if we think outside the box a little bit, look how delicious it is, you know. Um, and that was just because I wanted to encourage people to not be intimidated by it, but also to fall in love with the ingredients as much as the dishes because it was the ingredients that they could bring into their everyday, you know. Um, and they still can. <laughs> yeah. 
I love and the that. ease it with much more ease these days because they are just more available now thanks to the uh, the growth in interest in African food. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's so much easier to find um, ingredients. A lot of uh, a lot of Brazilian cuisine from the north, especially, uses a lot of obviously African ingredients because our cuisine came from the African slaves, right? They came from mainly mm-hmm. West Africa. Yeah. And it's funny because sometimes you go do a dish and you either go to like a Latin American shop <laughs> or like an African shop, but it is so much easier to find everything these days, which is super nice. Yeah. Even for us as Latins. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we share so many ingredients. Um, and I love that, you know. And that's the other thing. It's like, you know, we're in completely different continents and we have the same ingredients. And, you know, very, very, sorry, excuse me, very, very close names for things. Don't, don't you have like a plantain fritter? What do you call that? Akara, akara, achara. Akadaje. Akadaje, yes. yeah. Oh. And we have like akara. Yeah. We have, you know, like we have lots of things we do very similarly. Um, and even the names sound quite similar. Yeah. But, you know, like ingredients like obviously maize and, um, you know, yams plantains obviously cassava yes um quite a lot of pulses i think as well we have in common right yeah do you you have bambara no i don't know what is that bambara is um it's really nutrient um protein heavy it's like a chickpea and it's really creamy and nutty and um delicious i'm gonna check but it's actually it's actually ground nuts nice um, technically because it goes into the ground but um yeah it looks like a chickpea and you can cook it like a chickpea essentially but it's just got a bit more depth of flavor to it you know oh my it's, god it's got getting so hungry food. now i'm just imagining all the food <laughs> <laughs> zoe can you before you go can you give us either the best career advice you've ever received or what advice you give anyone starting their own businesses now the best advice i've ever received um is don't rush um and i say that because i when i did my my first degrees in law and when i finished my law degree i had a tutor called edward who was very inspirational to me and he he had basically spent he did his first degree in law as well and he spent 10 years bumming around barley and the tropics and came back and, you know, did his conversion and then became a very high-powered and very well-respected barrister. And I remember him talking to me about that because I knew that I didn't want to go into like law practice, really, definitely not straight after uni, but just hearing him uh, talking about the fact that there was no need to rush, you know, because once I had the degree, I'd always have the degree, you know, or whatever the, the thing is that you have, like whatever qualification it is. But anyway... And also just because, you know, in our 20s, we're st- there's still so much processing and digesting and there's still so much to explore and be curious about. So I would, I would, my advice would be to be, you know, speak, don't rush, but, um, and be curious. <laughs> That's what my advice would be. I love that advice. It's very good. Uh, I, lo- I, would, I wish I had heard that as well in my 20s, although I rushed for everything. I'm like severely anxious about things, but uh, I think yeah, that's I mean, really we nice. We live in a different kind of world now, and I think that the old paradigms around, you know, work, um, success, career, all of those things, I think, are, the paradigms around them are shifting a little bit, and I think it's more important for people to be curious to find out what they're good at because when you are curious enough to keep trying things that you think you like doing, your skill or your gift will emerge. And and in that emerging, you know, work no longer becomes work, it becomes play because you'll end up getting paid for what you love to do. So that's why, and, and I say don't rush because it's really hard for people to think like that when they're in school or university. Um, and that's why I say be curious is to keep your mind open to what that could be but just to think 
about not rushing into things and just like take a minute. I love that, Zoe. And finally, before you go, be, besides your incredible book full of recipes and inspiration, what are three things you'd like to recommend people now? So anything that will bring them joy or that it's bringing you joy. So it can be one recipe, book, a movie, um, and song, anything you like. Okay, I'm going to tell you about this guy on Instagram. He does a breath workshop with, um, he does traditional African drumming and he gives me life every day. He's lovely lovely face I cheer up anyone's day hang on I've got to find him or is she ah he's in my stories apologies to those listening <laughs> Kia Wellness he is K-I-I-R-E Wellness on Instagram check out his breathing workshops with um, some rhythm they're so cool I love him um, platforms I like right now Tastemakers Africa I love Tastemakers Africa because um, it's like life, culture, food, travel from all across Africa. Um, they've got a really cool, um, like they're always putting on cool talks and events online and stuff. And books, I just heard a snippet of Cast. Um, the author's name escapes me. I think it's Kimberly something, but I just heard a snippet of that book being read on um, a podcast and I want to read that book Wait, it's next. not the one from Isabel Wilkerson. That's it, yeah. Yes. Isabel Wilkerson. That's just gone to the top of my reading list. That's on my reading list as well. Maybe we can do a, a little book club. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm down. Amazing. My, my, I've, I've, moved, I've been, I spent the last year on... Um, I got addicted to audiobooks, babe. I've listened to like so many books this last year. But um, I, I want that in a physical copy, I've decided as well. I like to have my literary stuff in there so I can hold it in my hand. But like all the other things, I don't mind as an audio format. That's, I don't know why. Yeah. That's just how it is. It's all right. I'm, I like old school books in my head as well. So mm. uh, that's, that's a good tip so that everyone can get yours as well. Maybe they can do a culinary <laughs> book club as well. Um, yeah. Zoe, thank you so much again for giving your time to us. I really appreciate you and your tips and sharing your journey so much with us. And I wish you nothing but the biggest success from here on. And I'm sure we'll be in touch soon again. Well, thank you so much for having having me gosh i can't speak <laughs> thank you very much for having me um lovely pleasure and yes i'm sure we'll be connected off of this podcast but in real life and see you soon i love i would love it thank you so much zoe have a wonderful end of the day for you thank you for listening to the island networking podcast if you've enjoyed that conversation why not send it to a friend rate, review, or subscribe to our podcast because really that helps us a lot. We also have a membership scheme, a mentoring program, online events, digital resources, and much, much more. To get involved with us and figure out everything that we do, just head over to iLightNetworking.uk or find us on Instagram at iLightNetworking. We have more incredible guests coming up next week, so don't forget to tune in every Friday for the podcast. See you next time.